I want to bring today is basically reflection and introspection on our inner life or life in general. So before we begin, let's uh, pause for a word of prayer. Father, we come before you and I thank you for who you are. We thank you that you are our Father who is in heaven. We thank you that we can have the privilege of being your sons and your daughters. As your word says that we are seated with you in Christ in heavenly places. And Lord, we realize that there is an enemy roaming around seeking whom we may devour. We know, Father, that he is trying his best to get our eyes off of you and onto ourselves. Father, to be busy with things in our lives that have little to no value. But we pray, Father, that we may abide in you, that we may daily examine to see whether we are in the faith. So, Lord, may you bless this hour here. May you bless the words that are being spoken. May you bless those that are here. May you just be with us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, <clears throat> reflection. And introspection. And thinking about life. Um, I have two accounts here of men that, that neared the end of their life. I want to read those accounts. And just uh, remember, as you listen, that we are not immune to this. Um, this could be us. It says the French writer and philosopher Voltaire, who lived, uh, was born in 1694, was a deist. His belief in the existence of a supreme being arising from reason rather than revelation. He opposed Christian beliefs fiercely and said that the Gospels were fiction and Jesus thus did not exist. Voltaire ridiculed God by saying that he is a comedian playing to an audience too afraid to laugh. To him, religion was a social phenomenon and he was in favor of religious freedom in the multi-religious society. He said that one religion would lead to uh, despotism when there were only two religions, people would cut one another's throats. But when there were many religions, they would be happy and live together peacefully. As far as he was concerned, Christianity was a vanishing phenomenon. One hundred years from my day, there will not be a Bible in the earth except one that is looked upon by an antiquarian curiosity seeker. He died um, 228 years ago in 1778. When Voltaire felt the stroke, he realized what end his life. He was overpowered with remorse. He had once sent for a priest and wanted to be reconciled to the church. His agnostic flatterers hastened to his room to prevent this from happening. But it was only to witness his ignominy and their own. He cursed them to their faces as his distress was increased by their presence. He loudly exclaimed, Be gone! It is you who have brought me to my present condition. What a wretched glory is this which you have produced for me? 
Voltaire was tortured with such an agony that he gnashed his teeth in impotent rage against God and man. At times he pleaded, O Christ, O Lord Jesus. Then again, I must die, abandoned of God and man. As his end drew near, his condition became so frightful that his agnostic associates were afraid to approach his bedside. They still guarded the door that others might not know how awfully an enemy of God was compelled to die. Even his nurse couldn't tolerate the scene of horror. Such was the end of a man who had a high intellect, excellent education, great wealth, and much earthly honor, but died without God. The second one is William Pope, was at one time a member of the Methodist Church and seemingly a saved and happy man. His wife, a devoted Christian, died triumphantly. After her death, however, his zeal for religion declined, and by associating with backslidden hypocrites, he apostatized and walked the path of spiritual ruin. His companions even professed to believe in the redemption of devils. William admired them, visited pubs with them, and in time became a complete drunkard. He finally became a disciple of Thomas Paine and associated with a number of those people. They would assemble together on Sundays to confirm each other in their infidelity and often amuse themselves by throwing the word of God on the floor, kicking it around the room and threading it under their feet. One day, William took seriously ill with tuberculosis. Mr. Rhodes visited him, exhorted him to repentance and confidence in the Almighty Savior, and also prayed with him before leaving. In the evening, William again sent for Mr. Rhodes. He found William in the utmost distress, overwhelmed with bitter anguish and despair. He endeavored to encourage him by mentioning several cases in which God had saved the greatest of sinners, but he answered, no case of any that has been mentioned is comparable to mine. I have no contrition. I cannot repent. God will damn me. I know the day of grace is lost. Mr. Rhodes asked him if he had ever really known anything of the mercy and love of God. Oh, yes, he replied. Many years ago, I truly repented and sought the Lord and found peace and happiness. But I have turned my back on him, scoffed at him, and now I am damned forever. I know the day of grace is past, gone, never more to return. I cannot pray. My heart is quite hardened. I have no desire to receive any blessing at the hand of God. He then cried out, Oh, the hell, the torment, the fire that I feel within me. Oh, eternity, eternity. To dwell forever with devils and damned spirits in the burning lake must be my portion, and justly so. William often and loudly repeated the reasons for his impending doom. I have crucified the Son of God afresh and counted the blood of the covenant an unholy thing. Oh, that wicked and horrible deed of blaspheming against the Holy Spirit, which I know I have committed. He was often heard to exclaim, I want nothing but hell. Come, O devil, and take me. At another time he said, Oh, what a terrible thing it is. Once I could... And would not, and now I want and cannot. He declared that he was best satisfied when cursing. He also passed away without God. There's two uh, very sad stories. 
of men that were not prepared to meet their creator. And we look at ourselves and we somehow think, no, this could never be me. But again, I just think that if, if I look at this, sometimes it seems like the more you harden your heart to, to God's calling in your life, the call to just repent and pray, you can see yourself in this. Where you say, I cannot pray, my heart is quite hardened. I have no desire to receive any blessing at the hand of God. And it's a terrible place to be if you find your heart in that state. And uh, yes, there is repentance. There is grace. It's never too late, but the thing is, the devil has had him so bound that he couldn't accept it. He couldn't break free from it. So my days are numbered. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. There are two inescapable appointments that are fixed for each one of us. Our first appointment is death. And whether we physically die or whether we will still be here when Christ returns, we will also die. Will be changed in the twinkling of an eye. And the following appointment, the death is the second appointment of, just, of judgment. We stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And I think you are all very aware that these two appointments are inescapable, they are fixed. They are fixed for us even before we were born. In Hebrews 9, verse 27, it says, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Now, I'm sure we've heard of a lot of strange stories where people tried to do all sorts of things so that God will somehow not be able to put their bodies back together. They grind themselves up in fine powder and then sprinkle their ashes out in the oceans and think that somehow they will escape if there's nothing to collect, then there's nothing to, uh, to bring forth. But that's not the case. I've, uh, I've read this before. Um, I like this quote from a philosopher. He said, if the past has taught us anything, it is that every cause brings its effect. Every action has a consequence. There's a saying, if a man plants melons, he will reap melons. If he sows beans, he will reap beans. It is true of everyone's life. Good begets good, and evil leads to evil. True enough, the sun shines on the saint and the sinner alike, and too often it seems that the wicked prosper. But we can say with certainty that with the individual as with the nation, the flourishing of the wicked is an illusion. For unceasingly, life keeps books on us all. 
in the end, we are the sum, we are all the sum total of our actions. Character cannot be counterfeited, nor can it be put on and cast off as if it were a garment to meet the whim of the moment. Like the markings on wood, which are ingrained in the very heart of the tree, character requires time and nurturing for growth and development. Thus also, day by day, we write our own destiny, for inexorably, we become what we do. That's very true. Our character and who we are is not an overnight process. It becomes ingrained just like a tree, the very heart of a tree. Character requires time and nurturing for growth and development. And one day, our true nature and heart will be revealed. Who you really are will be revealed. Our thoughts, our motives, our words and actions will be put on trial before God. And there we will stand having our whole lives on review. Everything will be revealed. Everything that we thought was hidden will be revealed and brought out into the open. And even those, you could say, those words that we thought were of no effect, the Bible teaches us every idle word we'll have to give an account of. We tend to think of that moment and ask the question, How serious will it actually be? What will actually matter at that time? You know, maybe God will overlook some things. Maybe some things are not such a big deal. There's a man that also taught this in the Bible. He's found in Daniel chapter 5. He's King Nebuchadnezzar. He was standing there, and uh, he was standing there. No, I think this was a different account. Anyway, Daniel had interpreted the dream for him, and he said, um, Daniel told him, let your gifts be for yourself and give your award to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. It says, O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up and whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind and his mind was made like that of a beast. His dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the most high God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. 
We know a lot of things. We have heard a lot of things. And yet, we can also fall prey to the stubborn pride that the son of Nebuchadnezzar had. You have not humbled your heart. You have continued in pride, making excuses and justifications for your actions. Pride is a real thing. So as seriously dangerous as pride is, it's equally hard to spot. It seems like when it comes to diagnosing our hearts, those of us who have the disease of pride have a challenging time identifying our sickness. Pride infects our eyesight, causing us to view ourselves through a lens that colors and distorts reality. Pride will paint even our ugliness in sin as beautiful and commendable to the point where we say, I'm not that bad. Everybody has these problems that I'm dealing with. Everybody has these issues. And we somehow justify them in our minds. We can't conclude that we don't struggle with pride because we don't necessarily see pride in our hearts. The comfortable moments when we pat ourselves on the back for how well we are doing are the moments that probably should alarm us the most. So as Christians, we believe that when we confess, repent, and turn from our sins, that God redeems, cleanses, forgives, and accepts or adopts us into his family. But he also, that he gives us his spirit who dwells within us. He gives us a new heart and mind. We now have spiritual eyes to see, spiritual mind and heart to discern and understand the things of God in a way like never before. God gives us the power to overcome sin and Satan through the power of Christ dwelling within us. And it's true. I remember my conversion experience of just totally surrendering and just giving up, saying, Lord, I'm done. And I can definitely say that he does give us the power to overcome sin. He takes away that desire those desires that were there, but it is only for a season. The temptations do come, but that power that he has imparted to us, the power of the Holy Spirit is there, guiding us through that. In Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 to 8, it says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. That there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. 
For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. I mean, how much emphasis do we put on these things? Do we, when we read through this or when we hear it, what do we think? Do we look at this seriously and turn inward and say, Lord, is this in my life? Show me if this is in my life. Because I know that your word does not lie. It says that he, he who does these things has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. So reflections. Like I mentioned before, it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless you indeed fail to meet the test? So I have some reflections here, again, of the inner life. And we know that God speaks through people, through the law. If we break these laws and excuse ourselves for doing so, the presence and guidance of God lose their reality in our lives. The freedom and radiance of the Christian life depart. So the first one is a very simple one. Am I truthful? Are there any conditions under which I will or do tell a lie? Can I be depended on to tell the truth no matter what the cost? Am I truthful? Am I walking in the light? And believe me, in my own experience, it is not the big things or the, uh, I can say when it matters the most or when it really matters when a lot would be, you could say, at stake. So you have to tell the truth. Because there's a lot at stake. It is the little things in our lives, the daily happenings where someone asks you a question and you evade it um, in an untruthful manner. it's, It's those things that chip away at your character and at the life within you. Am I honest? 
Can I be absolutely trusted in financial matters? Can I be absolutely trusted with financial matters? And we live in a corporate community where we share our finances. And I often ask myself, am I being trustworthy with what the benefits that I have as being part of a group? And somehow, a lot of times, we make these justifications in our mind that it's okay, that um, it's good. And I mean, I'm going to do this without anyone's um, blessing or accountability. And it's fine. And we just skirt on the outside there. And uh, you always have to think, I mean, when I, when I look at this, you always have to think that there's a generation coming up, and even our very children, that are walking alongside, and they might not be able to see what, exactly what we are doing. We can hide a lot of things from them. But I'm of the mind that it, these things do not just affect your own life. I've, I've been around long enough to know if there, if there are things happening in my life, they will somehow, in some way, trickle down to my children, whether I want them to or not. So can I be trusted in my work even when no one is looking over my shoulder? Can I be trusted with other people's reputations? This fits into this question of honesty. Do I rationalize and become self-defensive when someone points out a fault or a sin in my life? Do I attack the man do I attack the motive when something gets point out, pointed out? Do I appeal to ignorance? Or do I honestly take a look at my heart? And do I honestly listen? Listening is a, is a gift. Because a lot, of, a lot of times, if you already have a preconceived idea in your mind when someone is talking, you are not listening. Because you're already formulating what you're going to say to that person as soon as they're done. And you've completely missed what they're trying to say. Anyway, that's how it is with me. You've forgotten everything they've tried to say. And it is a, I do believe it is a gift. Am I excusing away known sin in my life? I think this is a dangerous place to be if we're doing that. Am I excusing a 
away. No sin in my life. Am I pure? In my habits, in my thought life, in my motives, in my relationship, the opposite genders, or gender, or genders. Am I pure? Am I selfish? Am I selfish in the demands I make on my family, on my wife or husband, or brothers or sisters that I work with? And a lot of times the things that I don't uphold myself. Am I badly balanced? Like moody or emotional? Am I cold today and warm tomorrow? Angry and sullen and depressed one day and happy and cheerful the next? Do I give in to emotions that spoil both my happiness and the happiness of those around me? Am I unrestrained in my pleasures, the kind I enjoy without considering the effect they have on my soul and on others? So back to this, this moody thing, these emotional roller coasters. What is something that we can do to uh, overcome these things? One of the things that I've, I've seen that help in my life is simply first to go pray, to talk to God, to share with him about it, to just say, Lord, I have this heaviness in my heart. I, I don't want to be around people today. Um, help me not to just lash out at other people because of how I feel. And you will find that just by being honest, that it changes something in you. And uh, I'm not saying that it's, it's, uh, it's like a 100% um, guarantee, but at least you're doing something. You're just, you're coming to Christ with it. Do I have bitter feelings and unforgiveness in my heart towards anyone? And we all know where that can lead. As is something that seriously separates in ways that we can't even imagine. Do I have high expectations and standards that I impose on others when I myself don't meet them? Am I letting myself become a slave of habits, however harmless they may appear to me? What am I living for? Self, money, place, position? Or are my giftings that God has given me at the disposal of human need dedicated to the kingdom of God on earth? So truth is very essential. Self-examination we have to put ourselves before ourselves and then look at ourselves. Reflection. 
The bravest moment of a man's life is the moment when he looks at himself objectively without wincing, without complaining, and just saying, yes, this is so. Lord, help me to change it. Self-examination, which does not result in action, is dangerous. What am I going to do about what I see? In putting on the new self, in Colossians chapter 3, it says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek those things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God, set your affections on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And in Matthew chapter 6, verse 21, it says, For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. It's a very simple statement from Christ. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. It's not, so we don't, you don't need a, uh, a PhD to figure out what this means. So if your heart were to be buried in the place you love most during life, where would it be? I think a lot of times we try to fool ourselves and say that the things that I'm doing don't matter that much. I have them under control. But in my experience, our affections always take us farther than we would like to go. And pretty soon we're in over our heads. And very simply put, the rest of our lives suffer. Set your affections on things that are above and not on things that are on the earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. I guess this brings me to complacency. One of the greatest dangers in a Christian life is complacency which basically means not caring. Satan desires for Christians to simply just not do anything, to be the quiet ones, literally. I have another short story here. It says by Soren Kierkegaard, the Danish philosopher and theologian, told this parable, the wild duck of Denmark. A wild duck was flying northward with his mates across Europe during the springtime. En route, he happened to land in a barnyard in Denmark, where he quickly made friends with the tame ducks that lived there. The wild duck enjoyed the corn and fresh water. He decided to stay for an hour, then for a day, and then for a week, and finally for a month. At the end of the time, he contemplated flying to join his friends in the vast Northland. But he had begun to enjoy the safety of the barnyard and the tame ducks had made him feel so welcome. So he stayed for the summer. One autumn day, when his wild mates were flying south, he heard their quacking. It stirred, in him with, it stirred him with delight, and he enthusiastically flapped his wings and rose into the air to join them. Much to his dismay, he found that he could rise no higher than the eaves of the barn. As he waddled back to the safety of the barnyard, he muttered to himself, I'm satisfied here. 
I have plenty of food. The area is good. Why should I leave? So he spent the winter on the farm. In the spring, when the wild ducks flew overhead again, he felt a strange stirring within his breast. But he did not even try to fly up to meet them. When they returned in the fall, they again invited him to rejoin them, but this time the duck did not even notice them. There was no stirring within his breast. He simply kept on eating corn, which made him fat. So, complacency is dangerous for Christians because it means you're growing fat for the harvest. I mean, the farmer is going to come along one day. He's looking for a nice dinner. So the Webster's definition of the word complacency is a feeling of being satisfied with how things are and not wanting to try to make them better. Self-satisfaction, especially when accompanied by unawareness of actual dangers or deficiencies. I'll read that again. Complacency is a feeling of being satisfied with how things are and not wanting to try to make them better. Self-satisfaction, especially when accompanied by unawareness of actual dangers or deficiencies. This sounds like a very dangerous place to be if you're a Christian. The Bible makes clear that Christians are never supposed to be content with where you're at spiritually. You are never supposed to be content. It says his divine, in Second Peter says, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire or loss. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Did you hear anywhere where it said that you should be content where you're at? It says, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, we are to seek Christ. And when we do, you will quickly notice that you are having more results in your victories over the temptations. The danger comes when we begin to rely on our past victories rather than Christ. Complacency tempts us to remember our past victories while we, be sure, we should be looking ahead to the next battle God wants us to win. And I know it's okay to look at the, what you would call the, um, 
the stones of remembrance, where you know for a certain that God led you here, he helped you to overcome here. But we cannot stand there and we cannot go back to these things and say, well, I'm in God, so therefore, because of this in the past, I mean, and this in the past. Um, and forget to, to understand that we're in the battle right now. So often we can experience the power of God in our lives and then assume because he acted like that in the past, he will also do the same in the future. We begin to become comfortable in our faith in a bad way. That's complacent. When we think of the past and then no longer see God in the present and future as we did back there. So no matter where you, who you are, no matter what God has done through you, no matter what amazing ministry or church you are part of, you are only as powerful and useful as your current prayer life or your current spiritual state. For example, if you think about King David, he did many amazing things before he fell prey to Bathsheba. I mean, he killed a giant before he fell prey to Bathsheba. Uh, the sin he fell into with Bathsheba. He was anointed by God. He won many battles. He had been a great king to Israel, but none of that prevented him from committing adultery. We must seek God always, continually, praying about everything at all times, even after the prayers in our past were answered or after we experienced some great move of God through us. To avoid running the race in vain, you must remember that we are only as useful to God as our last meaningful time of pursuing him. Distant pursuit of God during one season in life is not going to cut it. We must seek him each day anew to finish the race strong. In 2 Timothy verse four to, or chapter 4, verses 1 to 5, he has a warning for us. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into fables or myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Now, we're not all evangelists, but I'm of the mind that we're all, we've all been given some type of gift that we can use to, to uh, bless those around us, whatever it is, whether it's serving or uh, encouraging or just listening even. So I want to close with another story. It says, in the early 17th century, England, Spain, Holland, and even tiny Portugal had established themselves as major naval powers. But Sweden was not among the great powers on the sea. 
had some of the single deck ships that were typically found on the Baltic, but none of the great men of war that prowled the oceans. And even in the limited arena of the Baltic, the Swedish Navy was nothing special, having suffered several defeats at the hand of the Polish Navy and just as many defeats at the hands of bad weather in the 1620s. King Gustav Adolphus decided it was time to establish Sweden as a major naval power. In 1626, he commissioned a warship that would be perhaps the greatest ship of his era and certainly the most magnificent vessel in the Swedish Navy. It was to be named the Vasa. King Gustavus Adolphus's ego demanded that the ship be the biggest, the best armed, and above all, the most beautiful. He added great statues and other heavy ornamentation to the Vasa. Worse, he added a second deck of extremely heavy guns. The result was a top-heavy vessel. Gustavus Adolphus may have been a good king, but he was a terrible engineer. The ballast, which would have been sufficient for the original design, was no match for the weight that had been added above the waterline. When the Vasa was nearing completion, the Swedish admiral began to have serious doubts about her seaworthiness. He did a run, he did a run test in which 30 sailors on, on the top deck ran from one gunwale to the other to test the stability of the ship. After only three trips back and forth, the ship was rocking so violently that the admiral halted the test for fear that the ship would capsize right there in the shipyard. The structural problems could be fixed. The keel could be deepened, the more ballast, and more ballast could be added to account for the above water changes, but that would mean a significant delay in the ship's launch. And the king had made it clear that he was in a hurry to get the Vasa on the seas. The Thirty Years' War had been raging for ten years. Believing that his new ship was a game changer, he wanted it in the fray as soon as possible. Even though it was obvious the Vasa was a disaster waiting to happen, nobody had the courage to tell the king. So on August 10, the Vasa launched right on schedule. With much fanfare, the Vasa left the ship and sailed out into Stockholm Harbor. The sailors and passengers, some of them families of the ship's officers, waved from the deck. It was a pleasant day with a slight breeze. The ship had not traveled a nautical mile when a slight gust of wind caught the sails. That one gust pushed the Vasa dangerously towards the port side. The sailors scrambled and the ship managed to right itself, but no sooner was it upright again than a second gust knocked it over again. Water rushed in at the open gun ports. Within minutes, Sweden's great naval hope was a hundred feet below the surface of the Stockholm Harbor. More than 30 people died. So there's a lesson in this. We're also building something. And we obviously can look at this story here and say, well, this guy was a full of pride. And that's exactly right. This is exactly what pride can do in a person's life. But we are building something. And I do believe it's the little details that were ignored along the way that cost the lives of those people. So, if we look at our own lives, 
in the community where we're at, the place that we're at, we're building something. And if we overlook the details, if we allow the pride to come into our lives, and if we do not, if we do not take care of the sins that we see in our lives, people are going to lose their lives, not physically, probably spiritually. And it's this complacency and laziness to correct these things. Well, I don't know if it was lazy, but it's just this, it's good enough or it's okay. We're looking at the outside. Everything has to look good on the outside, but we're not dealing with the, with the inner life. We can function on the outside. Everything can see, everybody can see that we're working, we're on time, we're doing all of these things. But inwardly, we're really struggling. And it comes out in different ways. And we just keep on building this boat. And then once we get out into the battle, that's where the test will be. All this outward adornment will be of no use when those winds come. And the um, collateral damage is what you see then. We don't have the courage to say, Lord, you know how I struggle with this. I feel I can't meet this need that is before me. I feel inadequate. The reflection in the mirror tells me that I myself need help. But please help me. Please give me grace to face this bravely, to fill up what is, and you fill up what is lacking. And you just need to do it. Seek help. Seek counsel. Don't just let it go. In Joel chapter 2, I'll end with this. It says, 12, verses 12 to 13, it says, Therefore also now, saith the Lord, turn ye even to me with all your heart, and with fasting, if need be, and with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your heart, not your garments, and turn unto the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and repented him of the evil. He is always there waiting, and there is hope. But we can definitely come to a place like these two men, the stories of these two men that I shared at the beginning, where we, just for years, just let things ride. And we think that somehow in the end, somehow, some way, find grace. But it's a dangerous place to be. And yes, grace is always there, but we know it can be too late. So thank you. God bless you.